Now, Father, as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table, we want to first of all do what we always do when we gather, and that is to consider the truth of your word. We are here not just for fellowship, but fellowship around the apostles' teaching, around the scriptures, which are the word of God. And so give us ears to hear now. Would you send your spirit to move in our hearts and to so move in us and have such sway over us that the joy of our salvation would be palpable in our hearts and that our desire to be pleasing to you would increase and grow. Teach us, Father, how to do that and to participate in that work of your Spirit this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I know you're comfortably seated, but let's stand in honor of God's Word and read 1 Timothy 4, 1 1 through 10. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 10. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching the teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed, having nothing to do, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily discipline is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people and especially those who believe. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. And you can be seated. This morning... Though I intended last week to cover all of this, um, we didn't make it that far, and this morning we won't even make it to that last verse again, because this is Lord's Supper Sunday, and I I want us to be faithful, to, to look at this scripture and understand it and come away challenged by it, and at the same time respect the reality that we need time at the end of the service to share the Lord's table together. And so this morning, I want to talk to you about spiritual disciplines that lead toward godliness. The thrust of the message can be summed up as follows, namely, that spiritual disciplines are channels of grace by which the Holy Spirit grows us into the joyful likeness of Christ. Let me say it again. Spiritual disciplines are channels of grace by which the Holy Spirit grows us into the joyful likeness of Jesus Christ. I want to propose to you this morning that what Paul is addressing in 1 Timothy 4 is the question of godliness. How does a young man like Timothy, who has been sent to the church of Ephesus, how does he teach about godliness? And how do we, as members of a local church, how do we pursue godliness? In verses 1 through 3, he reminds us of what the Spirit has been teaching the church and telling the church all along the way, namely that in the last days, many professing Christians will fall away from the faith because they listen and believed doctrines of demons Delivered by liars whose consciences are seared. Um, Does it disturb you when Paul talks like that? This is not happy, slappy, warm and fuzzy, lovey-dovey, everybody's okay kind of language. Um, 
Paul loves the church of Jesus Christ almost as much as he loves Christ. And he's unwilling for anything or anyone to come and disrupt what God is doing in his church. So doctrine matters. And the doctrine of the false teachers in, uh, uh, is a little bit different from age to age, culture to culture. It's going to be a little different, different places. Um, the kind of false teaching that is delivered in, in pulpits today in America, a little bit different than the false teaching that's presented in Haiti or in Azerbaijan or in Uganda or wherever it is the Lord may lead you. But in the case of Ephesus, they were teaching that godliness was achieved by abstaining from things that you would otherwise enjoy, namely marriage and good food. Don't get married and don't take any pleasure in food. Taking pleasure would be sinful. And, but Paul says these are things that God created for our joy and for our temporal satisfaction. They are not for eternal satisfaction. They are for temporal satisfaction, and God is concerned about that as well. There was, uh, in the church of Ephesus, this false teaching was a works-based system of achieving righteousness by which they hoped to recommend themselves to God. If you were to ask them, when you die, if you were to die today and you were to stand before God and he were to say, why should I let you into heaven? They would say, because we denied ourselves pleasure. We denied ourselves the privilege of marriage. We denied ourselves certain foods. And they would have a, a whole list of other things. In fact, if this corresponds to what was taking place in Colossae, they would also say, we kept the Sabbath. We celebrated at the new moon festivals and, and all of those things that were required by the Old Testament law. That's why you should let us in. And that, beloved, is a works righteousness. Paul knew this was not how God wants us to pursue godliness. Denying yourself the joy of marriage and abstaining from certain kinds of food is not going to result in your becoming like Jesus, which is what discipleship is all about. It is learning Christ, not learning about Christ, not just knowing what he taught, but learning Christ so that you become like him. And so last week, we were introduced to the three ways to guard and grow in godliness. I say guard and grow because if we are indeed to become like Christ, we must defend ourselves against the false teaching, the false ideas, the false propositions that are presented to us as true every day. In three ways we identify, uh, the way, ways we identify to grow in godliness from this text are these. Number one, be defensive. That doesn't mean have a defensive spirit. Um, I remember one time I was traveling with a, a team uh, in college, and we had a lot of sound equipment, and we were bringing it in, and uh, I was going out, and there was a trailer full of all of our expensive qu equipment, and I saw a young person there. I assumed they were just a, a young member of that church, and I said, um, I said, hey, how you doing? And he said, nothing. <laughs> so there's a guilty conscience. Um, don't, don't be so defensive. I was just asking how your day is. Um, he's not talking about having a defensive spirit. He's talking about um, whenever we hear some new teaching, we should be careful to suit up in the spiritual armor and be ready to defend ourselves and our families against the prospect of false teaching. And secondly, be discerning. In other words, be careful to measure what is being taught against what you already know from the scriptures about God. That was the error here. We know that God gave all these things for us to enjoy. In fact, Paul will talk about the rich in the church two more times in this, in this book, in this little letter. And the second time, he reaffirms this, that God has given us all things to enjoy. Now, we're not allowed to overindulge, either in, in, in adultery, fornication, relative to marriage, and gluttony relative to food, that would be sin. He's not giving us license to sin, but to enjoy what he has given us. And there are so many wonderful things that lawful pleasures that honor Christ 
as we partake in them with an attitude of thanksgiving. And I love the fact, and some of us have discussed this during the week, and we're, we're blessed by this reality from the apostle here, that the only requirement that God places on enjoying food in a way that honors him, the only law, the only regulation is this, be thankful for it. Thank God for it, which is why before we eat a meal, we give thanks to God for the food and for whatever else you want to thank God about. It's the perfect time to count your blessings and recognize that every good and perfect gift comes from somewhere. It comes from God who loves you and he delights to give us good things and he is always giving us good things. Even when he disciplines us, he is giving us good things. And so that's number two, be discerning. And then number three, and that's where we'll camp out today, be disciplined. Look again at verse seven through nine. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself in godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Once again, Paul calls us for a defensive posture here. Have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. If you have the NIV, it translates it godless myths, and that's certainly true. Um, These are false teachers who are godless. If you have the New American Standard, it translates it, this is interesting, uh, have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. And... um, And that's an accurate translation, and I think the reason Paul verbalized it the way he did here, and it's it's kind of glossed a little bit in the ESV, but um, the philosophers of the day, whenever they ran into a teaching that they thought was mundane and shallow and worthless, they would say, oh, that's just a teaching for old women, silly old women. It It was not a put down of older women. It was just saying, this is a category of teaching that we think is is not even worth considering. Um, Paul says, have nothing to do with such teaching. Don't waste your time talking about it. It's not going to lead to godliness. It's not going to help you grow to become more like Christ. It's just going to distract you. Solomon said, don't answer a fool according to his folly. Just Just walk away. Don't spend any time with that. Don't entertain their foolish ideas. Rather, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Now, the word discipline here means training. Or if you have the King James Version, it says, I think, exercise, which really kind of gets to the heart of it. Exercise yourself for the purpose of godliness. This is the language of a serious athlete. No one makes it to the Olympic Games without serious, serious training. And so it is with the pursuit of godliness. We won't become spiritually fit and strong You won't grow to maturity in Christ by some kind of spiritual osmosis. If you put the Bible under your pillow, you won't wake up more godly in the morning. Um, Now, we need to understand that our our justification, which is just a big word for salvation or regeneration, the act by which God declares us righteous, though we are sinful because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Justification is something that God does all by himself. Theologians say salvation happens monergistically. That is, he is the person who is at work. We don't work ourselves into heaven. We don't do things that, that earn salvation. But Jesus did. Our salvation Is there salvation by works? Yes, but not our works, his works. His righteousness. It was a monergistic act by God. He saved us. But when it comes to growing in Christ, God has given us an active role to play. Theologians say that the growth in godliness happens synergistically. In other words, the Christian has the privilege and responsibility to actively participate in the work of the Holy Spirit which he's doing in one's heart to make him or her like Christ. Paul is simply teaching that growth in godliness requires personal discipline. Now, it's interesting to note here that the Greek word for discipline is gymnazo. 
from which we get the word, what? Gymnasium. Um, it was used twice here, once in verse 7 and once in verse 8. The gymnasium in Greek culture was the place where, where men especially engaged, men exclusively, engaged in physical training. It was all about body, um, body worship, um, body image, and strength, and running or doing whatever other games were a part of, uh, more than likely the Isthmian games rather than the Olympic games that was nearby in Corinth. But they would train and train and train and train and train. And so they would do that in the gymnazo, in the gymnasium. And it was a place of personal sacrifice. It was a place of, of great effort. And Paul uses the verbal form here. Not go to the gymnasium, but rather discipline yourself. Train yourself. Exercise yourself. He's telling us what we must do. On the one hand, we're not to spend our time and energy on thinking about the latest silly spiritual myths passing through the Christian culture or religious culture in the world. Think the Shaq movie. Uh, Listen, pay no attention to that. These things only cause spiritual confusion and keep people living in a perpetual state of immaturity. You know, how much of this is true? How much of it isn't true? Um, Is the Holy Spirit really to be identified with um, an an Asian woman? And, you know, this is silliness. This is... This is the kind of teaching that is fit for only for old women. And by the way, there's some wonderful critiques that have been um, done on that book and that movie to help you as you're talking to people because the reason it became a movie is because so many people have been drawn into this. And now I understand the author is, has come out with a book explaining his doctrine, which only confirms what we thought from the beginning. He's the very kind of person that Paul is talking about. This is doctrine of demons presented by liars. Those things are not to be considered, and they are to be abandoned. It's the kind of thing that we rescue people from. And so don't go there. Rather, actively engage in the kind of spiritual training and discipline that will result in godliness. Now notice the comparison in verses 7 and 8. He says this, have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. That's one side of the equation. Rather, here's the other side, train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for godliness. Now, as I'm using my computer for Bible study, I have it set up so that it will identify any imperative, any verb that is imperative, which is the strongest form. It's a command. And, and this, this pops right up when, when you, you go to this passage. This is an imperative. It's an active imperative verb. In other, in, in other words, this is a strong command. It's not a suggestion. Paul does make suggestions. In fact, even in this text, but we don't have time to look at that. He says things a little more softly, a little more circumspectly perhaps, a little more gently. But this is an active, a strong active command. Paul is calling for a determined effort in sanctification. Exercise yourself for godliness. This is especially important in a world in our day where so many have fallen prey to the error of the new antinomianism that says our justification is the only thing that matters. And songs have been written about this, and I've talked about that from the pulpit before. The only thing, this is what they say, the only thing you really need to think about as a Christian is the glorious reality that Christ is your righteousness. And God always accepts you, not because of what you have done, but on the basis of what Christ has done. And beloved, let me be clear on this. That is certainly a correct and beautiful understanding of justification. It is the foundation of our hope that God has monergistically declared us righteous. And we are at the same time justified and sinful. How many of you in here are sinners? 
Well, there's some exceptions, but apparently. (laughs) We are all sinners. How can we have any standing with God? Answer, he has justified us by the righteous life and bloody death of Jesus Christ. By his righteous life. Why, Why did he live 33 years? Why didn't he just come down on the weekend and die and go back to heaven, rise again? There had to be Active obedience, righteousness. He had to do what Adam failed to do and do it on our behalf, which is why he had to be God. Perfect righteousness, God's righteousness, through a human being, a man, which is why he had to be man, and then to die for sins he never committed. And I think the whole story of Barabbas being set free and Jesus being crucified, it was all about that substitution The one who is guilty is set free. The one who is innocent is nailed to the cross. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I hope you never get over that. I hope you never get over thinking about, meditating on the reality that God treated Jesus as if he lived your sinful life. That's why he was hung on the cross. And why did he do that? So he could treat you as if you had lived Jesus' perfectly holy life. That's substitution. That's the basis of our justification. We have been declared righteous in God's sight. That's why Paul, over 70 times, he refers to us being in Christ. God has placed us In Christ, we are united with Christ. Therefore, when God looks at the believer, the regenerate child of God, he doesn't see us. He doesn't see our sin. He doesn't see our failings. He sees Christ. And so all we have is Christ. All we need is Christ. All we will need for eternity is Christ. And so God has declared us righteous. Yes, I mean, Justification by faith alone, that was the doctrine upon which the whole Reformation was built. And yet that is not the only doctrine Paul teaches. He also calls us to active participation in our growth in Christ, becoming more like Christ. I'm going to talk about this next week, but in the the area of sanctification, there is an already and there is a not yet. We are already declared righteous in Christ, but we are growing into what is already true about us, like adoption, right? You get adopted into, you can be in another country and be totally uh, and legally adopted by a family in the United States without having even met them, Uh, theoretically. The documents are signed. And so there is the already. You've already gained the name of your adoptive parent or parents. And yet there is a not yet. You're not in their home yet. And that's true of us. We're not home yet. And and isn't that a blessed reality? Our hope is that we will one day be home and and all all of our sinful inclinations will be gone. And we really will not only be declared righteous, we will actually be righteous in his sight. And so that's the not yet. But until the not yet becomes the reality now, we have the privilege of growing into what we already have been declared to be, namely, righteous and holy as Christ is righteous and holy. The analogy of an athlete in the gymnasium is not a one that conjures up the picture of a runner laying on his back in the, in the infield, polishing a medal that someone else won for him. No, the athlete metaphor is designed to communicate the very opposite. Godliness requires personal discipline. It calls for time and effort in the spiritual gymnasium. And this is not the only place talk, Paul talks about this. Now turn with me just briefly to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Turn to the left. If you hit Romans, you've gone a little bit too far. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, a little Bible study here, and starting in verse 24, here's what the apostle says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize, 
So run that you may obtain it. Or the New American Standard says, run in such a way that you may win. Run like you intend to win. And sometimes when our kids are swimming in, in, in practice, the coach will say, are you intending to lose? Swim in such a way that you may win. Continuing verse 25, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. We, an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as though beating the air. I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul's really serious about this. Run in such a way that you may win. This is, this is about, it doesn't mean that there's only going to be one Christian who makes it to heaven. It's not what he's talking about. He's using the analogy of a race. There's one winner. You, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you. You be that person. You treat your Christian life as if you were training for the Olympics. This, beloved, is not a picture of passivity. It's a picture of one who is actively and purposefully engaged in the race. It is a picture of one who discipline or exercises himself for the purpose of godliness. Now, I need to be clear here. I'm going to do it here, and I'm going to do it here at the, at the end as well. But Paul is not calling us to discipline ourselves for salvation. We get that, right? Salvation is not by works. It is unto good works. He's not calling us to discipline ourselves for salvation, but for godliness as those who have salvation. The discipline doesn't save us, but it is the way we cooperate with the Holy Spirit who enables us to learn Christ in order to become like Christ for the glory of Christ. It is, it is our way of pleasing the Lord. Paul says that uh, in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, I make it my ambition, whether at home or absent, whether I'm in, in heaven or on earth, to be pleasing to the Lord. We do this by actively placing ourselves under the means of grace, as they are called. And what we're talking about here is, is pretty basic We're talking about um, Bible reading, studying your Bible, meditation on Scripture, prayer, service, giving, other disciplines that we could employ and should. Notice Paul says, verse 8, for while bodily training while bodily exercise is of some little value, godly new way as it holds a promise for the present life and also for the one to come. In other words, a commitment to exercise your body is good. It offers some little profit. And little in terms of its, um, its extent and its duration. In other words, its extent, you're only going to make your body stronger if you have the strength to even get started in that, and some of you don't, I mean, not much. Um, and so it it's only has to do with the body. But secondly, it's, it's extent or it's, it's duration. Because uh, if, if you've ever spent time working out, and you can tell I've spent little time working out, um, you know that you can, you can work for months and months and months and months and months and months and months Training, physical training, at the gym, at the YMCA, wherever. And you become strong. You get sick, and within a matter of weeks, it's gone. It's gone. It's temporary. Now, Paul's not, say, Paul's not saying that's bad. He's not saying don't engage in physical discipline. Uh, to the contrary, he's saying it, it has some value, some value. So they knew that there was, it's more healthy to, be, uh, to exercise, to keep moving, to do some basic things that would help your body work better than to just lay around and be a slug. Um, But that is never going to produce godliness in you. In fact, there are temptations there that um, could lead you in the other direction entirely, and often, often, often does. If you do it for the wrong motive, if you're doing it for body image, you know what that is? It's self-glorification. You're asking people to worship you. 
I want to have the body that people will enjoy looking at, and so I'll dress in a way that people like looking at. That's, that's inviting people. Worship me. Worship me. That's what I want, I long for. And, and that'll get you into big trouble. That'll lead you down the wrong road. And there are an awful lot of people, especially you ladies, there's an awful lot of men who will willingly worship you to their own demise. And so it's, it's, it's a vicious circle. And so be careful. Exercise, it's good, physical exercise. It's nothing compared to the spiritual exercise, the benefits from spiritual exercise. Um, those spiritual exercises have value not only for today, and you've heard me talk about joy a few times, and I hope I always do when we meet together, but um, spiritual exercise produces a joy in you and a desire to know God and actually the process of knowing God, learning about God, that those who don't exercise spiritually, they know nothing of. They know nothing of. If you're going to grow in grace day after day, you'll experience the rich blessing of knowing God in Christ and be better equipped to minister to others. You will know the increasing measure of joy that Christ promises disciples. And when you get to heaven, I mean, will it be profitable then too? You'll look back and say, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. Nobody's going to get to heaven and say, you know, I just wish I'd watched more movies. (laughs) You're going to get to heaven and you're going to go, oh my word. I wish I had spent more time learning Christ. I wish I had spent more time meditating on his word. How many problems could have been resolved before they ever occurred if I had just known the word of God and obeyed it for my own joy and for the glory of God. So Paul says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance. And for this end, for to this we we toil and strive. The word toil here is kapiao, and the word for strive is agonizomai, from which we get our word agonize. Now, I don't think he's saying that spiritual discipline should be agonizing for you. Rather, again, he's using the language of a serious athlete. And some of you either are serious athletes or have been serious athletes, and you know the kind of work, and why, do you, why did you do that? Why do you do that? for the joy set before you, right? And so this is the language that Paul is using. Warren Wiersbe writes this, when I see high school football squads and baseball teams going through their calisthenics under the hot summer sun, I'm reminded that there are spiritual exercises that I ought to be doing, Hebrews 5.14. Prayer, meditation, it's meditating on the scriptures, self-examination, Fellowship, service, sacrifice, submission to the will of others, witness, all of these can assist me through the Spirit to become a more godly person. Now, it bears emphasizing at this point that no amount of self-effort alone can accomplish the goal of godliness. No amount of self-effort alone. You can't do it. You just can't do it. You don't have, you don't have the means. You don't have the spiritual power or ability to transform yourself. This is spiritual work. Human effort doesn't save anyone, and human effort doesn't sanctify anyone, not by itself. But regarding sanctification, Paul says in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who is at work in you, both to will, that is, he gives you the desire for it, and to work, that means the power to actually do it. Ener, ener, what's the Greek word for energy? Uh, Keith isn't looking at me, so we don't know. <laughs> I should have looked it up. But this is uh, energeia. It comes, the word there for power is energy. The energy that we need from this doesn't come from us. It comes from the Spirit of God. I remember one time when we lived in our old house. Early on, our kids were young. We only had, you know, three or four of them. And my, uh, my parents came, <laughs> my parents came 
And uh, my dad wanted to help me put up a swing set. And my oldest son, Josh, who's, I think, 26 now, uh, he's just a little, little guy, and he wanted to come out and help. So I said, well, Josh, come on out and help. And uh, we had this honking big lag screw. It had to be this long. And we were going to put it through, and it was going to attach to another post to ho- kind of hold that piece together. And he said, Daddy, can I help? And I said, absolutely, son. I, wanna, I want you to do this. And so we put a, a, a ratchet on there, you know, a wrench. And, um, and I said, son, give it a crank. And he got on there, and with all his might, he couldn't move that thing. And the wrench had a really long handle on it. And I said, son, I want you to keep pushing, but scoot over a little bit. Let me get in there. And so I reached my hand in, and I grabbed the end of it. And as he was pulling with all of his might, I just grabbed it and went, I'm behind him. Is he doing it? Yes. By whose power? Mine. (laughs) Right? And that's the picture here. You don't have the capacity to put it all together. You don't have the strength. You don't have the spiritual resources. But God, in the Holy Spirit, does. And he makes it easy. And he makes it joyful. And he makes it fruitful. Where otherwise, it would just be work that produced no fruit. Work out your own salvation. God is at work in you to bring about his good purpose. Therefore, okay, so this is, this is what God is not saying in this text. The Bible is not saying God is at work in you to bring about his good purpose. Therefore, stay in bed. And don't get up. I mean, until you're hungry and then go to the refrigerator, you know, whatever. Don't get up and discipline yourself. That's not what God is saying. Rather, Paul is saying Work out your salvation because God is at work in you. And John Piper observes, God's work doesn't make our work unnecessary. It makes our work possible. It makes it possible. Without the Holy Spirit's power and influence, we would not even want to grow in godliness. But he gives us the will and enables us to work for his good pleasure. And that means at the end of the day, even our growth in Christ is a gift of God's grace. Even our growth is grace. And so Paul is not merely calling us to self-discipline, but spirit-empowered self-discipline. But what kind of discipline are we talking about here? Practically speaking, what kind of discipline enables me to grow in Christ's likeness? I mean, it's one thing to be theoretical and say you need to exercise yourself spiritually, but how do you do that? Now, that's a good question. And let me mention just three primarily, and there'll be some subcategories here, and then there are many others that I, haven't, that I won't list. But just to kind of keep it to three, we see kind of the, the, um, the foundation of this in Acts chapter 2. The church is brand new. The Holy Spirit is drawing people to himself. 3,000 have come to Christ, and then more, and then there's 5,000, and they're meeting from house to house. And what were they doing? Well, Acts 2, Luke tells us that they were devoting themselves, here we go, number one, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. What's that? Scripture. They're devoting themselves to Scripture. Number two, they were devoting themselves not only to Scripture, but to fellowship. And he mentions the breaking of bread, which may have to do with the meal, or more likely, the sharing of the Lord's table. Isn't it interesting, providentially, we would be sharing the Lord's table today. And so that's two, fellowship, the apostles' teaching, fellowship, and number three, prayer. They're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, which I think is a form of fellowship, and prayer. This practical application here is, is this. First, if you have a Bible, we're talking about spiritual exercise, spiritual discipline, to grow in godliness. If you have a Bible, you should read it. And I, and I don't mean that to be funny. I'm, I think we think sometimes, or we live like, uh, you know, I have some good spiritual connections, and I, I, I come to church, which we'll talk about in a minute, um, but you don't read your Bible. You're not, you're not asking for God to speak to you through his word. Listen, I've been to seminary. I've, been, I've got 
a couple of theological degrees. And you know what? I find things in the Word of God that I kind of sort of remember finding before that are totally fresh for me. It's in 2 Samuel 9. Then in 2 Samuel 9, bless your soul. How many of you were in 2 Samuel this, this week? It's in 2 Samuel 9. Charlie was. 2 Samuel 9 and read the story about David, who was the king of kings of his day and a type of Christ. And after winning all these wars and annihilating his enemies, he sat down on his throne one day and he thought, hmm, who can I be? Who can I show compassion to? I just want to do something for somebody. And so he calls his servant and he says, hey, does Saul, my arch enemy, who's now dead, not because David killed him, but because the Philistines did, is, is there anybody in my arch enemy's descendants who's still alive? And somebody comes and says, yeah, there's a guy. He's poor and he's lame in the feet and he's Saul's grandson, Jonathan's son. And David says, bring him to me. And he comes. And that's a fearful thing to come and stand before the king. So he didn't stand. He got there and he fell on his face. And David says, Mephibosheth, stand up. Because I'm going to do something for you that I think will be pleasing to the Lord and pleasing to you. You now should consider yourself a member of my family. And you, sir, shall eat at my table, the king's table, for every meal. Not only that, but all of the land that was your grandfather's is now yours. And all of your relatives are now your servants by my command. And I read that and I thought, that's, that's a picture of what God did for me. He took someone who had nothing to offer God but his lameness and his inability and sin and said, come, eat at my table every day. You're part of my family and all of my son's inheritance is now yours. Enjoy it with him forever. It's a picture of our salvation. It's a picture of the gospel. And you know what? If I weren't just reading the Bible to the next chapter, I didn't know what was in until the other day, I didn't know. Well, if you asked me about 2 Samuel 9, I would have gone, hmm, I don't know. Something about God. <laughs> Something about Samuel. Um, but reading it, you just never know. Just never know what God is going to say next by the words in his book. Um, second, if you're able to go to church on Sunday, you should go in order to fellowship with other believers and listen to the scriptures being preached and taught. That's a, that's a spiritual discipline. And so you may be comfy, and maybe some of you are a little sleepy and hot right now, which makes sleepiness worse. Um, but you are participating in one of the disciplines. You got yourself out of bed this morning, even though the time changed last night. And you came to church. Not everybody does that. That's not something to be proud of, that's something to thank the Lord for, that he has invited you to come and participate in this kind of discipline, not allowing yourself to say, I'm just going to stay in bed this morning because the time changed. Listen, you, look, you didn't eat your ice cream last night. That could be an excuse not to come. There are 10,000 excuses, but you didn't give in to any of those excuses. You just said, it's the Lord's day. We don't have a decision to make. Here we go. I want to be a part of God's family, God's house, be with God's people. And then the th a third is this, as the Bible is the means by which God speaks to us, so prayer is the means by which we speak to God. This is two-way communication. He speaks to us in his word. We speak to him through prayer. And believe me, and you probably already know this, prayer is not easy to do. You talk about a spiritual discipline. Um, it is much easier to come to church and listen and to sing and to pray with others. And it's, it's an entirely different story. To discipline your mind for a half an hour just talking to God about things that matter to you and matter to him. To talk, to worship, to confess sin, to pour out your petitions 
for yourself, your family, and others is perhaps the most difficult discipline of all. And, and it takes labor. It takes work. It's, it's like an athlete. If, you, if you're going to win, you don't sleep in. You, you, you're exercising when you'd rather be sleeping. You're choosing not to eat another hot fudge Sunday when you could. It's discipline. It's personal discipline. But devoting ourselves to prayer enables us to grow in Christ in ways that can only be attributed to the work of the Holy Spirit. And the natural question of this is this. If discipline in these three areas are God's means of causing us to grow in godliness, how disciplined are you? In reading and meditating on Scripture, how committed are you to fellowshipping with the spiritual family of the church? And how devoted are you to prayer? Are you pursuing these disciplines, these spiritual exercises, like a serious athlete? Or have we let our spiritual muscles become flabby and weak? You know, I, I recalled uh, this week that um, the times that I was really growing and, and could really sense growth in my life were times when I was not just reading the Bible, but responding to it in, in a brief paragraph with my pen. And, uh, and recently started doing that again, and I thought, you know, it's not, journaling is not necessarily a spiritual discipline mentioned in the Bible. But if you understand it to be meditation, it is. Anything that you can do to slow down your brain and make you think deeply about a text of Scripture is meditation on the Scripture. And so helpful, so helpful. Are we pursuing the disciplines, spiritual exercises, like a serious athlete, or have we let our spiritual muscles grow cold and weak? And if so, that may account for why we tend to be ineffective in battling temptation. I heard one of, one of our young guys say to another one, young guy, he said, what? You're not, you're not memorizing scripture? Dude, how do you battle temptation? How do you battle lust? Um, that's a good question, but it's too convicting. Let's move on. <laughs> it may be one of the reasons why the joy is gone. It may be why the joy is gone. Your lack of joy is, is often um, related to your lack of discipline. It may be helpful to think of the spiritual disciplines the way the Puritans did. They referred to them as the means of grace. The means of grace. This is not, there is a kind of grace that brought us to saving faith. There is a kind of grace that floods our hearts and our minds in such a way that instructs and empowers and emboldens and helps us to live for the glory of Christ and makes us strong. How do we access this instructing, empowering, emboldening grace? Well, truth be told, we can't control the grace. There's no magic formula. God is not your dog. He doesn't have to come when you whistle. He doesn't have to do anything when you crack open your Bible. He doesn't have to pour out his grace. But these things we know for sure. That usually when God is going to pour out his grace, he pours it out as you're reading the Bible. He pours it out when you're coming to church. You, you discipline yourself to be here. And this is a place, it's like, it's, it's like putting yourself in the channel of grace. It may be a dry channel when you get there. But you know this is where God typically pours out his grace. It may be convicting grace. It may be encouraging grace. It may be just sanctifying grace that you're maybe unaware that God is changing you on the inside. How you think, how you, how you desire but we know that there are, there are things and there are places where God typically pours out his grace. And all Paul is saying is, be diligent to put yourself in that place. The place where your, your head is down and your Bible is open. The place where you're walking the neighborhood in the dark or, or sitting in your closet, praying, talking about God about everything or talking to God about everything and, and fellowship in, in, when you come together for worship and in your small group, in any other way you can get fellowship with one another, just know that may feel like sometimes discipline. Do we have to go to small group again? And are we going to have people over again? And, and, and may the answer be, yes, 
for my joy. Yes, for the glory of Christ. Put yourself in the place of grace. Um, And by the way, the Lord's table is a means of grace. You know why? Because it reminds us every time of what the gospel is and what Jesus did for us. I do need to throw in this caveat once again and that the spiritual disciplines will not save you. That is a works righteousness view. Being disciplined, I mean, don't come away from here thinking, you know, I don't know Jesus, so I'm going to go home and, um, and start working for him. No, no, no. You'll never know him until you come to a place in your life where you're willing to say, God, the only thing I have to offer you is my sin. I bring you nothing. I have nothing. And I realize now for the first time in a powerful way who Christ is and what he did. How could I have heard it 10,000 times and never really understood it? But I understand it. And I love it. And, and more than that, I believe it. Lord, I'm, I'm not accepting you as my Savior. God, I'm asking you, will you accept me? As your child, will you adopt me into your family? You've promised that anyone who comes to you will not be thrown out, will not be cast aside, not be rejected. Will you accept me for who I am right now? And will you change me? Lord, anything you want from me, I'm yours. I'm yours. Take me. Change me. Save me. That's the heart of a person that the Holy Spirit of God is on the move within. And I pray that if you are in that position outside of a knowledge of Christ, a a true knowledge, a knowing and becoming of Christ, that today would be the day when you repent and believe to your joy and to the great and awesome glory of God. Father, we praise you for your truth. And we praise you for the invitation to come and and sit at your table and to commune with you. But in these busy lives that we have, that kind of delight requires duty, requires discipline. May we be found faithful. And may we grow in ways that we can never have imagined. All because of your grace. To you be all the glory for it. In the name of our Savior, Jesus.